good morning. I'm so happy that you're here. And as we transition from worshiping through music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word, I want to invite you uh, to read along with me our passage for today. It comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 16. And today is our third sermon in a series of sermons on worship. And so again, today our passage is Acts chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 16, and you can follow along in your copy of God's Word as well as the screens behind me uh, with this really, really interesting uh, and encouraging story this morning from the Word. It says this, beginning in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and through your creation. 
and that Holy Spirit, you enable us to worship. That is, it is just us responding to your greatness, God. So I thank you for revealing that to us as we look upon your greatness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with Pastor Kevin now as he expounds upon your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. And thank you for joining us in worship today. And let me take just a moment and say, if you are in our overflow room, I'd like to welcome you as well as if you are joining us online or by podcast. Uh, Thank you for joining us as well. So I came across a story recently about a man named Sam who sang in the choir at his church. In fact, Sam was the most faithful choir member that they had. He showed up every, every week for practice on time, and he showed up every single Sunday for worship. The only problem was Sam could not sing. Actually, there were two problems. Sam could not sing, and Sam did not know that he could not sing. And so Sam sang loudly. Every song he would absolutely butcher with his voice. The choir members loved Sam. The worship pastor loved Sam. But they knew that Sam did not need to be in the choir. And so several members went to Sam and they suggested that maybe he serve in another area of the church instead of the choir, but he insisted on staying in the choir. The worship pastor went to Sam and suggested that he serve in another area of the church, but Sam again insisted on staying in the choir. Finally, the worship pastor had had enough and he went to the senior pastor and said, you have got to do something about Sam said, he is ruining every song that we sing. And he said, in fact, if Sam stays, I'm leaving, and half the choir's leaving as well. So the pastor knew that he had to do something, and he went to Sam, and he suggested to Sam that Sam leave the choir and serve in another area of the church. And Sam quite innocently asked the pastor, why? Why should I leave the choir? And the pastor decided that it was time to be blunt. And he said, Sam, I have to tell you, 10 people have told me that you cannot sing. And Sam replied, well, pastor, that's nothing. 50 have told me you can't preach and you're still here. (laughs) Apparently, Sam was allowed to stay in the choir. This morning, we are continuing our series called Worship Matters, and in this series, we are talking about matters related to worship, like singing and preaching, but if you've been here with us, you know that we are also talking about the fact that worship matters in our lives. Now, who you worship or what you worship will set the direction of your life, and if you are a follower of Christ, your worship of God matters. It is a source of internal joy in your life that can exist regardless of what is happening to you externally, which is exactly what we're talking about this morning. I've entitled this particular message, Singing in the Darkness. I think if we're honest, when life is going well, when things are going as we would have them to go, singing and worshiping and praising God is easy. When life is not going well, 
when things are not going the way that we would have them to go, it's hard. How are you and I able to praise God even in the darkness? When life isn't going the way that we would want, how are we able to continue to worship God? Our guide for answering that question this morning is the passage that you heard Stephen read earlier. This particular passage comes from the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, the author of the book of Luke. And the book of Acts tells us the story of the early church. And the second half of Acts tells us the story of Paul and his missionary journeys. According to Acts, there were three. Some scholars think there were four based on some other verses in the New Testament. But we know that there were three. And the story that Stephen read occurs on Paul's second missionary journey. On this journey, he took with him a man named Silas. Uh, Silas, like Paul, was Jewish by birth, but Christian by faith. And they began this journey together. And at one of their first stops, they met a young man, probably just a teenager at the time, named Timothy. Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. And so Timothy was considered to be Greek. He was Greek by birth, but he was Christian by faith. In fact, Paul was so impressed with his Christian faith that he asked young Timothy to join them on their missionary journey. Paul would become somewhat of a spiritual father uh, to Timothy, and later Timothy would become the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and Paul would write letters to Timothy. Two of those letters we have in our New Testament, we call those 1 and 2 Timothy. Then at some point, Paul and Silas and Timothy meet up with Luke, the author of the book. We're not sure how Luke came to know the Lord. We're not sure how Luke came to know Paul. We just know that at some point in Acts 16, Luke transitions from his narrative being in the third person and using the pronouns they, them, to his narrative being in the first person and saying, I, we. Luke, like Timothy, was Greek. He was Greek by birth, but he was Christian by faith. At a certain point in their journey, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying to Paul, come here and help us. And so they changed plans and they began to head west into what is modern day Greece. And the first city they enter is the city of Philippi. It was a major city in the Roman Empire. It had been established centuries earlier by Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon was known best for being the father of Alexander the Great. And during the time of Roman rule, it was a major city. Lots of resources had been poured into this city. It was a place where Roman soldiers would go and retire. It had such a Roman flavor that it at one point was called a little Rome because of the buildings and the government agencies and the commercial businesses and everything that was offered there. Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy go into Philippi and there they meet a woman named Lydia. Uh, Lydia was a worshiper of God, but likely unfamiliar with the God of what you and I would call the Old Testament. And so they share the gospel with Lydia, and Lydia becomes a follower of Christ. By the way, the first follower of Christ on European soil. Europe would later become the epicenter 
of Christianity, and it began here with Lydia. Lydia was wealthy. Uh, she was a seller of cloth, and she, uh, through this business, had made a lot of money, likely had a large home. She invited Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy to stay with her in her home. And so they agree, and for a while, things are going well. But then while staying in Philippi with Lydia, things take a strange turn for Paul and his companions. That's what we read about in the passage earlier. In Philippi, there lived a slave girl. Uh, she had several owners, and within this slave girl was an evil spirit. This evil spirit gave her the ability to predict the future for individuals, to offer fortunes. We're not going to go into all there is about demonic possession. That's another sermon for another time. However, understand this, demons do not know everything, but they know a few things, and they can give half-truths, sometimes all-out lies, to trick people. And this particular slave girl had a demon residing within her, and this particular demon knew that Paul and his companions were followers of Christ and had the gospel message that they were carrying with them. And for some reason, and Luke does not tell us why, this demon simply could not resist telling this slave girl to tell everyone that these men were followers of Christ. You heard this in the passage earlier. The slave girl began to follow Paul and his companions around, and everywhere they would go, she would scream out, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they can tell you how to be saved. You want to know how to be saved? Just ask them. You want to know the gospel? Ask them. You want to get to heaven? Ask these men. They know how. And Luke tells us that Paul became troubled. Some translations say that Paul became annoyed. Well, why was he annoyed? What she was saying was right. It was true. What made Paul annoyed at this slave girl? I think it was just that that he was tired of listening to her day after day. It, it would be like you going to work at your office and as you're approaching your office, someone's standing outside your office and they say, here comes this company's number one employee. There goes the world's best employee into the office. Employee numero uno is going upstairs to work in his office. I mean, day one, day two, day three, you might think it was kind of neat. You know, after a while you're thinking, oh no, I got to walk past the wacko again. Uh, can I take a back entrance? You know, after a while, it would just become annoying. That's what happened with Paul and this slave girl. Paul had had enough. And so he rebuked the spirit that was living inside her. He commanded this demon, this demonic spirit to leave her, which was great for the slave girl but not so much for her owners. Suddenly, their little moneymaker was not able to make money for them any longer. And so these owners were furious with Paul for what he had done. And so they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the public square to face the authorities. And you may be asking, what happened to Timothy and Luke? You know, it's like they ducked into a coffee shop and sat in the back corner. 
sipping on lattes and just hoping no one knew that they were with Paul and Silas. Why were they not seized as well? You remember what I said earlier? Paul and Silas were Jewish by birth and Christian by faith. Timothy and Luke were Greek by birth and Christian by faith. These slave girl owners likely seized Paul and Silas because they understood that they could play on the anti-Semitic sentiments of the crowd. That they could point to their Jewish background as a reason for the authorities to do something about Paul and Silas. And that's exactly what happened. They brought Paul and Silas before the governmental authorities and they accused them of these really vague crimes. These men are disturbing the peace. They are advocating customs that are foreign to us. These strange traditions. I mean, you can picture the government officials there kind of thumbing through the rule book going, well, we're not sure exactly what crime they've committed here. And maybe they were scratching their heads, but then it says that a crowd formed and jumped in on the attacks. And the magistrates, they may or may not have wanted to actually condemn Paul and Silas for what they had done, but they wanted to appease the crowd. So they gave the order that Paul and Silas were to be beaten with rods. This was a common Roman punishment to strip the condemned and to beat them with rods. It was cruel it, it was so awful that it was an illegal punishment to use on Roman citizens without that Roman citizen being officially found guilty of a crime. By the way, Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. But the authorities assumed because they were Jewish that they were not Roman citizens. They never asked Paul and Silas, and for whatever reason, Paul and Silas never spoke up and said, hey, we are Roman citizens. You can't do this to us. And so they were beaten, and then the authorities had them placed in prison. And the text tells us that the jailer places them in stocks in an inner cell meaning it was a cell with no windows, and there they were in the darkness, beaten and bruised, uncomfortable in these stocks. From our perspective, they were both in literal darkness and metaphorical darkness. Life for these men had turned on a dime. One day they're meeting in the home of Lydia, they're sharing Truths about Christ with her, they're eating food, they're drinking drink, they're excited about Lydia's newfound faith in Christ, everything's going great, and then the next day, they are dragged off to prison. The target of these owners of a slave girl, the target of an angry mob, they're beaten in the public square, they're placed in this inner prison. It's not exactly the kind of day they had hoped for when they got out of bed that morning. So what do, they, what do they do next? In prison, in the darkness, in chains, what do they do next? Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Stop right there in the middle of the verse. The fact that Paul and Silas were praying does not surprise me. When we're in the darkness, we tend to be really good at praying. When life isn't going our way, 
our prayer lives suddenly ratchet up. When we are in desperate need, we get very good at praying. So what happens next that surprises me? Continue with the verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. The fact that Paul and Silas prayed in the darkness is not a big surprise. In the darkness, I would expect that they prayed. But Luke tells us that along with praying, that they worshiped, that they sang hymns, that they praised God in the midst of their pain, that in the darkness, they worshiped the Lord. Pastor and theologian John Stott noticed about this particular passage that instead of cursing men, that Paul and Silas bless God. Let me be real honest with you here for just a moment. I'm not there. I don't know about you, but I am not there. Uh, this passage is much easier to preach than it is to live out. This passage is much easier for me to talk to you about than it is for me to live out in my life. I want to be there, but I'm not there. In fact, if you beat me and put me in prison, I'm going to spend a whole lot of time cursing men rather than praising God. And in fact, in a situation like this especially, I am really going to be upset. You know, trump up some very vague charges now, being the target of this anti-Semitic crowd, now, being a Roman citizen and my civil rights have been violated. You know, I might pray, but at the same time, I'm going to scream out, somebody call Mike Hostelo <laughs> because I am absolutely ready to sue from the guard who beat me all the way up to and including the Roman emperor himself, I am going to sue everyone for what has happened to me. I'm just not sure that like Paul and Silas, that I have it within me to praise God and sing hymns in the depths of prison. But here's what I can tell you. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to sing in the darkness. I want to be able to worship in the hard times. And my guess is, like you, I want to be able to experience joy regardless of what is happening to me externally. So how do we do that? How do we get to that place in our lives? If you'll notice on your message map, I've got a couple of reasons to sing in the darkness. There are more than just two, but based on this passage, these two uh, seem to fit with exactly what was going on with Paul and Silas. The first is this, and you can write it in, a reason to sing in the darkness is, it is an honor to suffer with Jesus. It is an honor to suffer with Jesus. What do I mean by that? Paul and Silas, I am sure, did not enjoy that beating. They did not want to be thrown into prison. And yet they were still able to praise God in part because what they experienced allowed them to identify with Jesus and the suffering that he endured. 
especially in their case with exactly what they went through. They were taken by officials before the Roman, uh, before the Roman authorities, just like Jesus. They faced an angry mob just like Jesus. There were vague, trumped-up charges just like Jesus faced. They were beaten and bloodied just like Jesus. Even in the midst of prison and darkness, they were able to say, you know, as hard as this is, I can identify with what Jesus went through on my behalf. A little more than a decade after the events that we read about in Acts 16, Paul wrote a letter to the Philippian church. This church that began with Lydia and a Philippian jailer and a formerly demon-possessed slave girl. Ten years went by and the church had grown significantly. And Paul wrote to the church these words in Philippians chapter 1. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And I'm sure there may have been someone in that church that thought, Paul, what do you mean to suffer for Christ, to suffer with Christ? That doesn't make sense. Paul, do you really know what you're talking about? And perhaps it was this formerly demon-possessed slave girl who spoke up and said, oh, Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. You see, when he cast that demon out of me, the officials took him and they had him meet and he was thrown in prison and he suffered just as Christ had suffered. And maybe perhaps the church understood that, yes, even in our suffering, there, there is this identity that we have with Christ. Here's a truth that applies to every single one of us in here. More than likely, you will not suffer the way that Paul and Silas suffered. It's possible, especially if God calls you to serve as a missionary overseas somewhere. Perhaps you could suffer in this way. Most likely, though, you will not suffer in exactly the same way that Paul and Silas did. However, all of us face injustices in life. And when we face injustice... It is easy for us to scream, this is not fair, and for us to become angry with God. God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, this isn't fair. Evil is winning, and I'm trying my best to do everything right, and yet I'm losing. And when we face injustice, it's easy to become discouraged and to cry out to God instead of praising God to say, God, you're not fair because this is happening right now. And here's the truth that we need to keep in mind, that we are not the first to face injustice. Jesus, in fact, was the most injustice-did in all of human history. And Paul and Silas faced injustice. And they did not let this injustice keep them from praising God. They did not let it steal their internal joy. Even in the darkness, they managed to praise God. And even in the midst of our pain and our suffering, we are able to find this connection with Jesus that allows us to praise God and sing in the darkness. Here's a second reason. You see this on your message map. A reason to sing in the darkness is that God brings good 
from evil. We read that in the passage earlier. That yes, Paul and Silas went through this awful beating, but that this led the Philippian jailer to becoming a follower of Christ. The doors flew open. The jailer assumed the prisoners had escaped. The punishment in that day for any jailer that allowed prisoners to escape was death. It it was a great way to keep jailers from accepting bribes, either from the prisoners or the family members or friends of the prisoners. Prisoners escaped. They executed the jailer. This particular case, the jailer drew his sword ready to kill himself when Paul and Silas shouted out, don't do it. We're all still here. He was so moved by the fact that they had not left that this jailer turned to them and asked, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to have the kind of joy that you guys have? And that event, their suffering, led this Philippian jailer to becoming a follower of Christ. It reminds me of the story that we we read in Genesis of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, who was taken down to Egypt, whose life was on a roller coaster of events. And then eventually God led Joseph to becoming the second in command in Egypt. And although he had suffered and although he had spent years in prison, he at this point serving as the second in command in Egypt, faced his brothers, those individuals who were responsible for all of those years that he suffered. And his brothers knew he's going to have us killed. He's going to have us in prison. We deserve that. We sold him into slavery. And yet Joseph was able to keep perspective on the situation. And in Genesis 50, he said to them this, you intended to harm me, But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Whenever we go through some kind of tragedy, whenever we are in the midst of pain, whenever we are in the midst of darkness, here's the truth that we can keep in mind, that God is working for our ultimate good. And whatever we face, God will bring good from that event. If you've been in church for a while, you are familiar with the name Horatio Spafford. Uh, He was a real estate developer in Chicago in the late 1800s. He was very successful, but then in 1871, in the great fire in Chicago, all of his businesses were wiped out. Um, Horatio and his wife Anna and his four daughters were essentially destitute after the fire destroyed much of the city. However, two years later, uh, they were able to rebuild their lives and they managed to sort of make a life for themselves again. And so after two years, they decided they needed a vacation. They needed some time to rest. And so they planned on a trip to go to England for some badly needed vacation. However, at the last minute, Horatio was held back by some business affair that he had to attend to. So he told his wife, Anna, go ahead, you take the girls, you guys go to England, I'll be on the next ship over. Their ship, as it was traveling across the Atlantic, struck a steamship, and it sank quickly into the Atlantic Ocean. 226 individuals were killed, including all four of their daughters. 
Anna, age 12, Maggie, age 7, Bessie, age 4, and 18-month-old Tanetta all died in the shipwreck. Horatio's wife, Anna, managed to survive, and she finally arrived in Wales, and she sent a telegram back to her husband with these two words, saved alone. He quickly boarded a ship crossing over to the Atlantic so that he could join his grieving wife. And he told the captain of the ship, he said, if you don't mind, when we get to the spot that is at least somewhere close to where this awful shipwreck occurred, would you let me know? And so at a certain point in the journey, the captain came to him and he says, sir, as best as we can tell, this is where the shipwreck happened. And so Horatio stood there for a while and he looked out over the Atlantic Ocean and he just stood in that spot. And then he left and he went back to his quarters and he sat down in his quarters and he wrote the lyrics to the now famous song, It Is Well With My Soul, which include in part the following lines. When sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Understand these are more than just words that were written by, by some songwriter in the midst of a jam session with other songwriters. These words were written by an individual who had somehow learned to sing in the darkness. And even the, in the midst of his pain and his heartache, he learned how to still praise God and experience inner joy. If you've grown up in church, that may be a story that you've heard before. However, there is more to the story that may not be familiar to you. Horatio and his wife, Anna, returned to the United States. They returned to the city of Chicago and there they rebuild their lives. Uh, Horatio managed to rebuild his businesses and became once again a successful real estate developer there in that city. They began to rebuild their family. They had a son, their only son, uh, who's also named Horatio. They also had two daughters. But then once again, tragedy vis visited their household. When he was just four years old, little Horatio was struck with scarlet fever and died. This event led Horatio and Anna to uproot their lives, to leave behind his successful career in business, and to take their two young daughters and to join with several other families and to move to the city of Jerusalem. And there they started a charity, an outreach to Jews and Muslims alike. They took care of orphans. They provided food for the hungry. They provided clothing for those who were in need. And although those events were awful, it led to this charity that even today, the hotel that they resided in is today still in existence and is named after this group. They called themselves the American Colony. And for years, people could go and they could receive help at the American Colony. And today in Jerusalem, you can visit this hotel called the American Colony Hotel. I don't know about you, but I'm just not quite there. I know this, I want to be. 
I want to be able to sing in the darkness. I want to be able to honestly say that no matter what, no matter what I face, that I'm still able to sing and praise God in the darkness. That whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen.